The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is two priests, Father William Jenkins, and we also have Father Martin Skierke visiting us tonight, all the way from Montana. So, Reverend Fathers, welcome to the program tonight. Thank you, Tom. Good to yes. see you. And Thank Father you, Skierke, wonderful to have you aboard here. Yes. Well, yeah, nice what brings you? Well, your 45th anniversary. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> Thank you for coming out for that. That's very kind of you. It's actually been a year since, almost a year since I've been here. That's right. You were here before, convalescing from your shoulder surgery. <laughs> yeah, too, so. yes, I did. Well, we can at least count on it as an annual thing, at least. Yeah. Hopefully, this visit will be less painful than the previous. <laughs> it's great yeah. to see you. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I'm here. Yes, it's great to have you both on the, the program tonight. We um, have uh, several several viewer questions that we wanted to get to tonight. Um, some of them revolve around a, uh, a shared theme of, uh, should we say, Francis and... Uh, Novus Ordo and the state of Vicantism question, um, of course, a recurring theme on the program. Uh, so I thought I would just read through some of these viewer uh, emails one by one and uh, ask for a response from, from uh, both of you tonight. So this first one, this viewer writes in and says, uh, Since Francis has taken office, we have witnessed his numerous satanic attacks on Catholic tradition. In light of these obvious attacks, I was wondering if you think that the quote-unquote dogmatic state of Vicantists may be the most logical position in these times of the great apostasy. I understand that you may not want to kick a, kick a dead horse, but it may be helpful to many to discuss the different degrees of Sedevicantism and suggest which one makes the most sense with regards to Francis. Have either of you ever heard of this degrees, these degrees of Sedevicantism? I've, I've never heard of degrees, but I presume they're talking about those who think he's a material pope and an informal pope, and that I think that's what must be referring to. I don't know. Okay. Uh, degrees, I don't know. Um, there are different species that are referred to as sedevacantism. Um, there, there are those who use the word sedevacantist uh, promiscuously, and they, they apply it to anyone who uh, even questions whether Francis is a true pope. And, um, but the fact is um, that there are very, there's a great difference between the position of one who holds uh, that Francis is not a, a uh, you know a valid pope. He's not a true pope, uh, and he's absolutely certain of it. And he holds it as a dogmatic position. On the other hand, an, a person who says, "I personally believe that Francis is not the pope, uh, but uh, I realize I don't have the authority to declare it such," and as it were, a dogma of faith. 
uh, and someone who says, well, I tend to think that Francis is not Pope. I have my serious doubts about him. Uh, and on the other hand, somebody who says, well, I don't know whether Francis is the Pope, but I think I'd better give him the benefit, benefit of the doubt, if there is a doubt. There's a very big difference among those positions, even though, let's say, a, you know, a, a clergyman of the Society of St. Pius X would just, as I say, promiscuously brand them all sede vacantes. They're not. You know, there's a substantial difference among those positions. Um, and, you know, the question is, I believe when this question is asking for the, the degrees of St. Saint, Evacantism, Saint I assume that's what he's speaking of. And I assume he's asking for us to comment on these various positions and see which is the most, as he says, what the most logical mm -hmm. position to hold. So with that, I turn the floor over to Father Skirky to <laughs> explain this to us here. What, what do you think of this, this dogmatic state of Evacantism position? Is that logical? I mean, when you witness everything that Francis has done, even the other Novus Ordo pontiffs. Well, witnessing the Novus Ordo. Novus Ordo is not Catholic. I mean, just break down, I think, break down something simple. Novus Ordo is not Catholic. He's the head of the Novus Ordo. As far as I'm concerned, he is the Pope of the Novus Ordo. So if he's the Pope of the Novus Ordo, then he is, but I don't see how he can be the head, Pope of the Novus Ordo and then Pope of the Catholic Church both. I, I just don't see the connection or the, the ability to be, to be both. It's not like if you log to the Moose Lodge and the, and the Elks Lodge, there's no, no incompatibility. The, the Novus Ordo would want to destroy, he would want to destroy the Catholic Church. So how would he want to, how would he, why, how, how could he want to destroy the Catholic Church and he's the head of that church to go and destroy? That would be a perverse, a perverse. So, so would it be fair to say, I mean, to interpret what you're saying is that uh, Francis is the Pope of modernism and he's mm -hmm. the Pope of Catholicism. How is that possible? Right, that's the, exactly. Uh, because uh, modernism is a synthesis of all heresies against Catholicism. Right, exactly, yes. So uh, you don't think that's possible? It's not possible. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that seems to be a very unsatisfactory answer for someone who uh, you know, may be very confused about this. And they, I mean, this would well, seem to be a simple question. Is he can... the Catholic Pope or not? No, he's not. He, he, he's he's a pope of the Novus Ordo. He, he, he's pope of modernism. I mean, so well, I go back to the thing. How can he be a pope of the of, the, of modernism, pope of the Novus Ordo, and be a pope of the Catholic Church? Let me ask you this question, though. Okay, uh, when you say that, and I mean, there's a certain compelling logic to what you're saying here, obviously, right? Um, but would you say that your thought process is an infallible? thought process so that you could dogmatically declare, because you have expressed this and concluded that you have, it's impossible. Would you say, therefore, that that gives you the authority to dogmatically declare this no, as, a, as a truth of faith? No, everyone? because that'd be something you must believe in. You must believe that as a dogma. Then. I mean, you talk about dog, dogmatic set of accountism. It's not a dogma. Although, so, so you would now say there's, now there's more, more dogmas like not conception, the assumption, and you would say that your position is a logical or theological position, but yes. you're not. You have no position to. You have no authority to declare those dogmatically binding the conscience. No, you couldn't. Do that. No, couldn't. no one could do that. Okay. Well, I, I thought that's I, what you'd answer. At least I hoped it was. Well, <laughs> <laughs> because I know you know I, I as much as I you know I'm convinced that that Francis. I personally am convinced that Francis cannot be the vicar of Christ on earth, which even he, he even he rejects the title right now. 
right? As convinced as I am by that, uh, I know that I am not the Pope, and I'm quite convinced you're not the Pope either. Right. So neither one of and even Tom, I don't think he's the Pope. <laughs> so none of us has any uh, magisterial authority to declare a dogma. Uh, you know, make a dogma out of anything that we consider to be a logical or a theological position. I mean, Aquilus would be said, it must be a dogma that you must believe you are not Pope. Must be a dogma, like a, a dogma. So, I, do I have the dogmatic, the magisterial authority to declare myself not the Pope? Um, <laughs> it, I, it needs I think I do. But of course, I don't have any magisterial authority. Period. Right. Right. So, sure. I, I guess mean, I don't have that authority to declare myself a non-pope. <laughs> uh, at least, it's all absurd. absurd. I mean, it, it does. And the very word said vacant means seat. Vacant is a seat is vacant. You're, it's not like you got a. It's not like you, you, you're partially a pope. It's not like it's not like I'm sitting in a chair and you're, you're not in the chair. It's, it's, it's said it's said a seat is vacant. Well, there are those who say that that it is a partial. You know, they, they divide the papacy into a magisterium and ministerium, evidently. And they say that you can actually have two different people, some say this, have two different people exercising magisterial authority and ministerial authority. And uh, you can't confuse the two of them. Who are the two? Uh, who, are the, who are the two people? Well, well, I don't know that they're naming them. Well, for a while there, that people were arguing that Benedict had resigned from the um, had, had resigned from the one but not the other. So that when Francis was elected, he was elected to the one of the two that Francis had uh, effectively resigned from. And I forget whether they say that uh, that uh, Francis had resigned from the magisterial authority but retained the ministerial authority, or whether it was the other way around, uh, that Benedict had resigned, rather, I beg your that Benedict had resigned from the one and Francis had assumed the other, so now there was a shared papacy. But you talk about absurdity. I mean, it, it gets to the point where it's, it's almost... You uh, shake your head. It, it, is, it, it is absolutely not, not Catholic. But then there are those who have with the Benedictines who said that, and they still do say, that Francis um, never became a true pontiff because Benedict never effectively resigned. So Benedict retained the papacy, even though Benedict insisted he hadn't, uh, and that uh, because Benedict did not understand the papacy, some are arguing Benedict did not adequately understand the papacy, and so he couldn't effectively resign the papacy. It's like you're reading a um, So Francis could never have actually become the Pope. So there, those are actually saying that Benedict, the last pontiff, died, leaving Francis and the rest of us popeless. Sounds like that's <clears throat> Popeless and popeless. Um, so you don't see the value of any. Well, of this. it sounds like the reading of a Marvel <laughs> comic book. <laughs> well, let's not do that these days. <laughs> oh, whatever. But you know, um, but he he says here he asks if the um, the dogmatic Sedevicantus position is the most logical position right now in light of what he calls uh, Francis's satanic attacks on Catholic tradition. I would say yes on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you would? I guess. I mean, it's the most logical position. I well, mean, once again, is he talking about dogmatic sedevicantism? I mean, talking about... That's what he's asking about. I don't think he would say that. I don't, I don't agree with... I, I agree with the logic 
of the Sedivacantism part. Right. I that is a logical position to hold. But you cannot declare it as a dogmatic. But it's not do logical to say, I have a dogmatic authority to declare right. that. That's not right. logical. Right. That's my argument with dogmatic Sedivacantism. That, I you know, know those who, who are dogmatically claiming uh, that they believe it, but everyone else has to believe it because they do, um, have no authority to, to right. bind the consciences of other people to agree with their logical conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I, I gather that you would agree with that. Please. I would agree with that, yes. Okay. Well, Father Shkiki, you, you say how the, um, the, the Novus Ordo or modernism is, is not Catholic, um, and therefore, you know, you cannot have a, someone at the same time be Pope of a, a modernist church and, and the Catholic church, but... Um, uh, on the this um, this idea that the Novus Ordo is not Catholic, I know Father Jenkins has said before that um, when when receiving uh, converts or uh, those who are coming from the Novus Ordo religion into the practice of the traditional Catholic faith, he says that so often they uh, they do not change their faith necessarily. They still believe the same things that they believed before. It's just that they are now able to practice the traditional Catholic faith that they right. were trying to right. practice somehow within the framework of the Novus Ordo. So, but, but how, um, if that's really the case, if these people are, are really Catholic, they really have the Catholic faith, um, can you not say that they are Catholic within the Novus Ordo? They um, may have the that? Catholic faith in, in, in the wrong religion. You could be a Lutheran and have all the faith of the Catholic beliefs. I suppose, really? I suppose, okay. you know, all right. Okay. A Lutheran could believe everything you and I believe before they convert. Uh, hypothetically. Hypothetically. But yeah. the trouble is, you know, someone who, uh, let's say, leaves the Novus Ordo to be uh, traditional, right. does it because he realizes that the faith that he holds, it's not that is the Catholic faith, does not correspond to the religion he's practicing right. in the Novus Ordo. In that religion, yeah. And he finds that the traditional Catholic faith corresponds to what he actually believes. Right? Yeah. Uh, yes. So, what would you would you consider that person a Catholic, if they are still within the Novus Ordo? They Catholic, believe? Catholic in belief, but yes. but yeah. um, I mean, suppose you had somebody who was, as Father Skerke says, a Lutheran. I suppose he's going to Lutheran church and singing for the Lutheran hymnal and and uh, all the rest, right? But he's reading the the Catholic uh, Catechism and he's becoming gradually convinced that the Catholic Catechism is the truth. And he comes to actually believe it. Yet he, he goes to the Lutheran church uh, one or two or three more times before he actually acts upon what he believes. So let's say he believes what is in the Catholic Catechism. He believes that is the truth. But he's still actually practicing Lutheranism. Right. You could say in faith, he believes as a Catholic, right? Yeah. But the religion he's practicing is is not Catholicism, right? right. It's opposed to Catholicism. Right. So what does that make of someone in that position? Hopefully a convert, right? Hopefully a convert. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, that would be the step. The person would have to act in good conscience to... Right. If you know something, if he comes to realization that his relig where that religion he's in is wrong, he would have to leave. He could stay yeah. there. Yep. Well, wait, you've had many converts come to your door. Would you say this, Father Skirky, that when the convert comes to your door, it's because he already believes that the Catholic Church is the true Church? Yes and no, in some cases, no. Because mm -hmm. they want to marry Catholic, and Catholic doesn't want to marry non-Catholic, so they want to come look into the Catholic faith, so they don't know anything about it. Okay, but do they present themselves as converts? No. Okay. I've had one recent that didn't present themselves as a convert. 
But when those who come and say, Father Skirki, I want to convert to the Catholic faith. Okay. Uh, would you say that most of them, some of them, any of them actually already have the faith in terms of they I believe think, I, that the I Catholic think of one case where there, I don't think there was any, just that they didn't like what, the parents didn't like what they, what they had. And they said, and what they heard about the faith sounded more logical, more reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so they, they wanted to know more about it. That's, I, so but I, have they decided to convert at that time? But see, that's my question. If somebody says, I want to convert to the Catholic faith, uh, I want to be received into the Catholic Church, I never are they at the point where they've already made it that act of faith? I've never had them actually say that to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have another one. I haven't had actually, actually had anyone put it quite that way to me, but I have had quite a number of converts who've come, and it's very clear to me that they've already decided that the oh, Catholic yeah. Church is the true church. Right, you've had that, yes, I've had that, yes. And so they, they've already to that extent made that act of faith that what the Catholic Church teach, teaches is the true. The and truth. willing to accept all that they don't know yet that will, they must believe. Yes, implicitly they already accept right. it. Well, that's what I've found, and then going through the catechism with them, they take it right in. Mm -hmm. You know, it like answers a void in their knowledge, but they, they've already allowed for the fact that this is the truth. Right, yeah. Um, so they, they already have, you know, made, in a sense, that, that act of faith necessary yeah, probably to so. move forward. Yeah. But they, they have to learn, they have to learn the actual truths of the faith. Right before they can be received into the church. Right. <clears throat> anyway, that's uh, my experience there. Um, but, you know, you know, that is an anomaly, what Tom is asking about. You know, if you have somebody who is actually practice, uh, believes one thing and is practicing another, and feels that there's a tension, that there's something not quite right, there's like a contradiction between that, what they believe and what they're practicing. Right. Like somebody who has the traditional Catholic faith still within the Novus Ordo, recognizing yeah. there's something wrong here. Right. And when they discover the traditional Catholic religion, they say, that is the practice of what I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Well, it's a very fascinating discussion. Um, another viewer uh, question though I wanted to uh, read this viewer says that he saw a video uh, on the internet which described Francis as the most public heretic in the history of the world and consequently the worst criminal in the history of the world worst what? the worst criminal in the history of the world since he's leading millions uh, upon millions of souls to eternal damnation can this be true? can Francis be the uh, the most public heretic or the worst criminal in the history of the world? <laughs> it's like, you know, there's, there's parallel examples that over the years people thought that the world was so bad, the world was going to come to an end. Sure. And it never did. And is he the worst one? Is he worse than Luther? Worse than uh, King Henry? Or worse than you name the, the Storius or whoever? I don't know. Is he the worst of that? I don't know. I mean, look at the time of St. Athanasius. The whole world went after for heresy. Yeah. Well, that's the whole world. The whole known world. A lot of them. A lot of them. Eighty percent of the Eighty percent, whatever. Yeah, but effectively. But 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 in our time, certainly he is. I, you know, did it, did he compare worse than others? Probably, I'd say so. But is it worse than others? I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. Well, you take a pope who 
um, attached to faith. We have a precedence of that. In, well, yeah. In Honorius, right? And how the church condemned him after his death, right? So he was by out and threw the Tiber. Uh, uh, St. Leo the, the, the second, right? Yeah. Uh, condemned him. And, uh, the church regards St. Leo the second, who condemned him. Uh, Pope Honorius I as a heretic, 40 years after his death, uh, St. Leo was, Canada, was a saint. It is a saint today. So, um, but you know, there is something that he asked there, Father, that is a little nuanced there, because he says that he, he's singling out Francis as the most public, right? Is that what he said? What did yeah. he say exactly there? The, the most public heretic. I'm the sure most well. public heretic. Yeah, probably, and you know, you know probably, I think I you think, have to say he is. I, th I think so, yeah. I would say so, yeah. Because his heresy is world world known, yeah. 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 It, is, it is completely, it's being broadcast throughout the solar system. I mean, uh, radio waves are carried everywhere. Right? It's, it, I had a non-Catholic you know. recently just tell me that uh, Francis was part of the whole problem we have in the whole world, but not even Catholic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This lady said that, that he's, he's, he's part of it, equal to the rest of the problems that we have. Well, here you have a non-Catholic saying that. And you, you know uh, the name Ettore Gotitereschi, the former head of the Vatican Bank? Mm -hmm. And this man has, has come out and said the Vatican is being used as basically uh, the, the launching point, or, or actually the, the focal point, for launching the new world religion, which Ettore uh, Gotti-Tedeschi called uh, environmental Gnosticism. Environmentalism, like global warming, global mm -hmm. climate change, and Gnosticism. Okay? Wow. And he says that this is the, the actually incoming new world religion, and the Vatican is basically ground zero of teaching Implem that it's modern even, And that's what she said, too. She was talking about that. She says implementing it. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, so there's non-Catholic see Non-Catholic see that some do anyway. So yet I think we'd probably agree that Francis really is, is the, the most public, most notorious yeah. in the history of the world, ah. because he has means of propagating his error, <laughs> as no one else has had. Right? But is he the most notorious criminal? Is that what he says? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and insofar as he's attacking the souls of millions and millions of people simultaneously, I guess if you consider that a crime, all right. It is, it is a crime against faith. It is a crime against God. I mean, look, look what Luther did in Cranmer. I mean, they, there are centuries, millions of people there, too, I mean, over long term running. Yeah. Yes. Have they had as damaging effect? Not as, not, not as fast. I mean, there's centuries now. You see what happened. It is now. He destroyed the Catholic faith in millions. He did, yeah. Well, since we're ask, we're both asking you questions for this. Let me ask you this question. Okay. Uh, Luther taught heresies, right? Right. A multiple heresies. Right. But Francis is a modernist, and modernism is a synthesis of all the heresies. Right. right? Yeah. So, if I pose the question that way, does that change the answer? He's yeah. If that's the case, he is the most then. Yeah, you'd have to believe he's the most heretical person who ever lived. Almost. <laughs> yeah, having the, if he if he is who he claims to be, uh, the supreme pontiff, uh, that he has the greatest responsibility, right? Right. To condemn the error, preach the faith, and uh, he's purveying the synthesis of all heresies. Heresies and stuff. I think we need to pray for him. 
No, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we have another email that goes even deeper, believe uh -oh. it or not. So, um, the, uh, we'll this, this viewer wrote in and said, uh, Canon 2265 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law says that a non-declared excommunication does not prevent one from maintaining or obtaining an ecclesial office. But Canon 2232.2 says a declaration makes a penalty retroactive to the crime. So given these canons, could one hold that the Vatican II Pope should be presumed to be popes while still believing that some sort of declaration could later nullify these papacies due to heresy? Perhaps pseudo-vacantism rather than dogmatic state of vacantism. New term there, pseudo-vacantism. Any thoughts on that? There you go, Father Jenkins. Turnabout is fair play here. What do you think, folks? <laughs> I that canon. I don't know the canon. I'd have to look it up. This guy can look it. Well, up. I, I'll, well I'll, okay. I'll read it to you. Okay, <laughs> save me the time, right? Brought the. This is Abo and Hedden, the sacred canons, in two volumes, very reputable uh, canon law commentary, and uh, regarding that. Uh, regarding these canons that this uh, gentleman, if he, it is a gentleman, I assume, is citing. 2265? Yes, let me see here. I thought I had the... You have Boywood here. Yes, well, there you go. You got it? Well, here, here's 2265. Canon 2265. Okay. This is actually what it says. Every excommunicated person is deprived of the right to elect, present, or appoint, is denied eligibility for dignities, offices, benefices, ecclesiastical pensions, or any other post in the church, is disqualified for promotion to orders. So the first point that the gentleman makes is contradicted by the canon itself. It seems to be, yeah, because he talked about maintaining maintaining ecclesiastical office or obtaining ecclesiastical office. Here it says, yeah, it, it says that he is deprived of the right, right. to elect, present, so or appoint. It's a nine eligibility. He's misquoting the canon or misinterpreting yeah. or whatever. Well, see, this highlights the problem. You have people who are not canon lawyers, canonists. They have perhaps never formally studied can canon law. Uh, but they pick up a, code, a copy of the code and begin to expound upon it. And in the seminary, I think my first year of canon law, we did the first 20 canons, I think mm -hmm. the first year. 20 mm -hmm. canons in the first year? Yeah. I think that's what we did, right? Yeah. So, and so you know, it's taken to, very seriously. They're up to canon 2000-something, 2265. <laughs> if someone did that with civil law, if they obtained some volumes of the civil law of the state of Ohio, the Ohio Revised Code, and read, you know, started reading, you know, statutes and applying them as though they had some authority. Uh, no one would take them seriously. Um, and yet, from the very beginning of the changes back in the 1960s, and 50s even, there were uh, men like William Strogi who were citing canons of the Code of Canon Law uh, like they were going out of style. They get a commentary and there they go. Actually, at that time they were going out of style. <laughs> uh, but they have no authority to expound on these things uh, because they have no knowledge. I mean, in order to understand the church's law, you have to understand her tradition. 
because in her tradition, she, the church, shows you how she interprets her own law. And it's by precedent. You know, that's what tradition is. It's precedent. So somebody who quotes the Code of Canon Law to make an argument these days is going to wind up getting himself in trouble. And You have to look at Catholic tradition. And, and also, too, even moral theology. We study principles for a year, just studying principles. So you, you read canon, now here's the principles of it. And they don't, mm. first year we studied, one year we studied principles in moral theology. That's moral theology, but that was the background, the, the, the footing, if you will, for, before we ever got to canon law. So they're lacking that. They, they just don't, don't have the background. They just don't. And, uh, they, don't, don't they don't even know that they don't know. That's the problem. You don't know what you don't know. So it's very dangerous. Uh, people who are trying to make an argument, like John Salsa, quoting canon law, they shouldn't be taken seriously. They have no concept or clue about what, really what, what they're talking about. They don't understand the principles behind the law right. to begin with. And uh, so it, it, they can really, really mislead people just because they have the air of authority because they're reading from the uh, commentary or code of canon law, but they're, they're totally misapplying it. And the only way to apply the law correctly is in the light of Catholic tradition. And that's what can canonists learn. And by the way... And we're not even canonists. And we're not even canonists, nor are we even theologians, right, in the strict sense of the term. <clears throat> so, but even if you were, even if you were a, a canon lawyer, you would still only be a lawyer. And you're you would still only be a lawyer. You could argue your, a case. Giving your opinion. And be found wrong. Yeah. Ecclesiastical court could find you wrong. And then you could appeal. And a higher ecclesiastical court could find them wrong. And so, so even if you were a canonist, it wouldn't make you infallible. It just gives you the right to have an opinion, basically. Um, but uh, heaven only knows what a court would do with that, whether you'd find you correct or not. Right. So people who are quoting canon law here are in almost inevitably misquoting it. Um, and, and here you have right there what, what you have there is it's not what, what he's saying. <laughs> but but you, you go, you, uh, the, the other canon, uh, what is it, 2232? 2232.2. 2232.2. I mean, that actually has, I think, some. Uh, and that's rather instructive, too, and I'll explain why. Because I think it, you can look at that and you can see immediately that the person is actually misapplying this. Uh, and here it is, Canon 2232. And uh, the effective penalties imposed by anticipatory sentence. Okay, that's what it's entitled here. And this is what it says. A penalty imposed by anticipatory sentence, lati sententiae, whether medicinal or vindictive, binds the delinquent in the external and in the internal forum. Now, how many people understand that? Okay. <laughs> if he is conscious of the crime. Now, Father Shirky understands that, and I understand it, because we've learned the terminology. We know what these words mean in terms of the law. But... You know, that doesn't, again, enable us to apply it in individual cases, certainly not infallibly. However, before the declaratory sentence is pronounced, the delinquent is excused from the observance of the penalty whenever he cannot observe it without defaming himself. And in the external forum, no one can demand its observance of him unless the crime is notorious, without prejudice, however, 
to the provision of Canon 2223, paragraph 4, which requires the pronouncing of the declaratory sentence at the demand of an interested party or on the initiative of the superior when the public interest demands it. Okay, so that's just paragraph 1. That's just point 1 there. Okay, now what he's referring to is what comes next. A declaratory sentence makes the penalty retroactive to the moment at which the crime was committed. Now, if you're going to look at that from the standpoint of law, they have a lot of provisions in there, right? He's just quoting uh, Canon 2232.2 and, and leaving that isolated, right? With no commentary. What, what it actually is telling you is that someone who incurs an excommunication automatically because he's done something for which the, the law itself automatically excommunicates someone. Okay, the question is, what is his status? And it goes through and it, it indicates whether, whether the, the penalty imposed by the law automatically is medicinal or vindictive, and there's a difference. Uh, how does it bind the individual in the form, in the internal form of his conscience and the external form in, in public? By his actions. How, how, does it, how does it bind him? Okay. And uh, they say if he's conscious of the crime, it, it, it has one effect. If he's not conscious of the crime, then there's another effect. It says if, if his crime is not notorious, then he, he publicly he can continue and not uh, observe, you know, the penalty, because he would, by observing the penalty, make his crime notorious and inform everybody, oh, I have to stop acting this way because, you know, I've incurred this automatic excommunication, and so I'm now I'm making it notorious by announcing to you that that's why I'm stepping down or whatever, stepping aside. I mean, it just feels you know, the, there's just so many conditions that you just you can't come up with a conclusion that easy. But this question, what he's, what he's asking here, is nonsense from the beginning in the sense that the Pope is not bound by canon law. So we're talking about the papacy itself. The papacy itself is not bound by canon law. So he's, he's starting out by trying to apply, you know, canon, what is it, 2, 2, two, six, two. Yeah. Uh, two, two six, five. Uh, six, five, uh and, and applying whether a man is even a Pope or not. Right? And you can't do that. And here, whether a man who is a pope, if he becomes a heretic, and he's even automatically excommunicated, whether, um, whether he can continue functioning as pope, you know? And the application of these canons in this case don't apply at all. You can actually continue reading this. You can, you can continue reading and, and you can see where they're actually talking about penalties like a declaratory sentence imposed by the pope. Well, obviously, we're not talking about a man who is a pope, whether he is a pope, because he's been, uh, shall we say, automatically excommunicated because he's lost the faith. Mm -hmm. But it's secret, and no one knows it yet, or it hasn't been declared yet. Okay? In other words, these things don't apply at all. And this concerns me very much, because I, was just, I just had a priest, a priest who's been a priest almost as long as I have, expounding these, these very ideas to me, and, you know, I kept telling him, look, I, I, you know, th this is not accurate here. We need to discuss this further because he was saying this is the position, actually, of a very large body of traditional priests about Francis. 
And uh, he even went so far then to say as, well, if it is later determined that he was the Pope, what, that, that he that was a heretic all this time, and they therefore declare that he was a heretic all this time, not retroactive. then it would be retroactive. So all of the acts that he performed and the decisions he made and the appointments he made going back to the time that he began to be a heretic would simply be expunged. They'd be eliminated. But then, and so the whole idea is absurd to do that. Who who would who would make that pronouncement first of all? But if that how that that future pope uh, wouldn't he have to be elected by cardinals that were appointed by this by the earlier non-pope who, who was now declared not to have been a pope yeah. when he appointed the cardinals so the, who elected the subsequent right. pope who declared the previous pope not <laughs> a heretic. So the whole thing is absurd. And you're going to go back and you're going to retroactively erase years of appointments, even cardinals, years of appointments of bishops, years of, you know, establishments of dioceses and who knows what else, years of, of laws that have been added to the Code of Canon Law by this yeah. non-pope who you decided five years after he became a heretic, he wasn't the pope all the time anyway. Can you imagine the fallout of that? It's, oh. in, it's inconceivable. Talking about a, a reductio ad absurdum, I mean, it really is absurd. So the position that they're, they're, they're mouthing here is an absurd position. But, you, you know, when we're talking about this question of, of the papacy and uh, someone like Francis, and uh, even, let's say, going to St. Robert Bellarmine's five possible positions for Catholics to hold with regard to Francis or any other questionably you know, possibly heretical pope. Um, even even the, the one that has, seems to enjoy the most favor, Hadjiton's position, that you'd have to have a declaration by the magisterial authority of the church, like the bishops meeting together and declaring that, in this case, Francis had in fact lost the faith. And therefore had died, technically speaking. He, he had died effectively, and uh, he had not been the Pope for the previous year, two, three years, as long as they say he had been a notorious heretic. And so you're going to retroactively undo all the things that he had said and done, right? But there's another very serious question, problem with that. Under even a, the best of circumstances, if you got, let's say, 2,500 uh, 2, to 3,000 Novus Ordo bishops together, even if there were no Novus Ordo, even in, in normal times, when in Catholic times, if there was a question of whether a pope had lost the faith and these bishops had gotten together to decide it, you might have two-thirds of those bishops say, yes, he is a notorious heretic. Yes, he is uh, act actually... Uh, pertinacious in his heresy, and therefore, from the time he became a heretic, which we say was at this point, all of his acts are nullified, and he was not really the true pontiff, right? But you might also have 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 other bishops who say, no, he, he's not pertinacious, or no, this statement was not heretical because it could be interpreted in a Catholic sense. And so now the bishops would be divided among them, themselves as to whether or not 
this po this man was really a heretic or not, a notorious heretic, a pertinacious heretic or not. So you might get two-thirds of the bishops saying, yes, he was, and he's not a pope, and one-third of the bishops saying, no, he was not a heretic, and he's not, he is the pope. And immediately you've you set, you set it up for an enormous schism there. Even if you follow what, you know, the, I think it is the fourth position offered by St. Robert Bellarmine says, is a Catholic position to hold. You realize that in the practical order, this is a real problem. And, uh, you know, simply calling the bishops together to declare on this is not going to be so much, uh, if it's by majority vote, and there are bishops that don't agree, some bishops saying, yes, he's a heretic, he's not the Pope. No, he's not a heretic, he is the Pope. What do you do then? How do you resolve that problem? Then you go from one problem to another. Yeah, yeah, the next problem would be uh, they'd have to vote and elect another pope by two-thirds. Yeah, then, they, <laughs> then you have they have to decide, well, what cardinals are still cardinals? But even, even then, as you're saying, Father Skirke, okay, take the two-thirds of the bishops who decided he was, a, he was a heretic. Now they have to decide at what point he became a notorious heretic. And they have to agree on that. Because they have to say, okay, how many of his decisions, going back how far, are, are nullified? So some might say, well, it was in 2012. Others might say, well, it's 2014. Well, how long hasn't he been the Pope? <laughs> you know? So the, the, whole, the whole thing becomes nightmarish, dystopian, as they say, right? Yeah. It, it becomes impossible to deal with and absurd. Um, I, I think, for what it's worth, I mean, no one, no one even deems my thought on this worthy of comment, I know. But I don't think Francis could ever have been the Pope to begin with, because I don't believe he even believes in the papacy. If you read what he himself has written about the papacy, notably what he wrote when he launched his synodal church, right? Um, on the 50th anniversary of Paul VI establishing the synod, and during his own uh, synod on the family, Francis issued the document in which he outlined the synodal church, the place of the people, the place of the bishops, the place of, the, of himself. Um, what he writes there is not the papacy. It is modernism. Um, if he believes that the place of the papacy and the, himself as the pope is to do what he writes in that document, that is not what the papacy is all about, interpreting the faith experience of the people as it comes to him through the bishops, interpreted by the bishops, that is not what the papacy is all about. It's, it's actually the antithesis of the papacy. It's like the anti-papacy. And yet this is what Francis says the papacy is. Now how can a man like that formally accept the office of the papacy when not only doesn't he believe in it, but he actually denies it, explicitly denies it, and, and actually embraces and, and teaches the, the very opposite of that, the, what the office really stands for, as, as Catholics know, as Catholics believe. So I don't, I don't know how he ever could have formally accepted the office to begin with. So, you know, I, think, I personally think the whole argument about, well, is Francis a heretic or is he not? Did he, when did he become a heretic? Um, when, when was it during his papacy that he became a notorious heretic? 
And at what point would he then have possibly stopped being the Pope? I think the whole argument is a waste of time. I think the, argue, the question is, uh, you know, has his faith actually changed such that he, he actually had the Catholic faith at one point and, lo and lost it at some identifiable point? And I'd like to know where people say that identifiable point was. I think it's long before Benedict resigned and, uh, and Francis, uh, that march, uh, stepped on the balcony, right? Uh, and broke with all Catholic tradition. Uh, anyway, that's my own thought. But what do you, you know, Father Skirke, I have to compliment you, by the way. Thank you. That's you know why? I would know. Well, because, to begin this kind of conversation, you boiled it down to the most fundamental terms. And again, that, that just tells me that people in Montana just... They, 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 they just think in straightforward, straightforward terms, right? Yes. <laughs> no, no, no fluff, no, no uh, uh, smoke and mirrors, just like, let's cut to the chase here, state the case as it is, right? And uh, I, that's what you did right from the beginning, right? I think it all comes back to that. So yeah, uh, skin, skin anyway, I, I attribute that to... Um, Something in the water in Montana, I guess. Yeah, maybe so, yeah. <laughs> well, um, fathers, Reverend Fathers, both of you, I mean, this seems uh, be rather frustrating for a Catholic today who's trying to practice his faith, particularly someone in the Novus Ordo who might have the Catholic faith and trying to practice it um, within the confines of the Novus Ordo. Um, I, I imagine one question they would have is, is why why would, would God permit all of this to happen? I mean, there's um, so much confusion and uh, I mean it there's already so much that a that a Catholic has to deal with and and fighting the, the worlds and the, the flesh and the devil but if he doesn't have this um, this yeah. uh, the, this Holy Mother Church if there is um, disorder or disarray there I mean the, the problem is just so extremely compounded why would God permit that to happen I don't know the mind of God but on the <laughs> other hand uh, God has allowed a lot of other times where the whole world went bad. I think, it's, I think of Noah, maybe, or when the whole world was bad. Yeah. He, it yeah, is a chastisement, right? It's a chastisement, yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what lesson are we supposed to learn from that? It's not to pry into God's will, or to understand, try to follow God's will, but try not to read his mind why he did it, maybe. We don't know. It's one of those things God never told us why. It said, certainly, you see a lot of reasons why, what, draw good from evil, maybe? Or make greater sense in evil times. Do you think these times require a stronger faith? Absolutely, yeah. Is that why? Is God shaking the tree, as it were? Is yeah, easily. Yeah. You know, there are so those who, who claim that uh, traditional Catholics who question the papacy of Francis, there are those who claim that they have weak faith. I think it's the opposite is true. Right. I think they claim cling to Francis because they figure, well, if we don't have Francis, then the the the, the Christ has failed, his promises failed, the church has failed, and I think their their faith has failed. You know what it's like? It's like these masks that we wore. It's their security blanket. Doesn't help many to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. He doesn't help many, but it's like their security blanket because they can't imagine if he wasn't the Pope, or they can't imagine what, why would God do so. He's their security blanket that they don't have to worry about because he's doing it. That's what I look at. Mm -hmm. Well, God certainly doesn't need Francis. No. 
Um, I don't think he wants us to, to need him either. I, I noticed that the, uh, the longer people cling to Francis and insist that he must be the Pope, the more they change their very concept of the papacy. They're losing the Catholic concept of what the papacy is because they're trying so desperately to just distort it to somehow include Francis. <laughs> and I think somehow, so. too, that instead of the faith, either you are a Catholic or not, they would give him a, a grading point of 60% or something, <laughs> or 70%. Now, 75 is Catholic now. Good enough to be Catholic. It's good enough to pass. Catholic by degrees. Yeah. And, and so, Pope by degrees. I yeah, guess. I guess. Oh. There's that. Maybe. Who knows? Well, again, you know, that comes down to changing the concept of the papacy. Right, right. You know, when you start doing that. As they started changing what it is to be Catholic, that you're in partial communion. You know, what does that mean? They talk about 60%, 7%. Uh, the church never admitted the, the category of being in partial communion. You had the faith or you didn't. Right. So you know, uh, if there's 100 doctrines, you know, deny one doctrine, you, you, uh, you're only 1% denial. You don't have the faith. You don't have the faith. So uh, it's the same virtue of faith that requires you to believe all the teachings of the, of the faith. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're, those who are clinging to Francis are actually slowly losing their faith and you know th there are those who insist i think uh i don't know if his name was kojak or how to pronounce the man's name uh, i think his name was steve but he uh, he seems to have been shaken and to the point where i don't know if he's lost the faith or not he was the man who was managing the first peter five uh, website at one time um but you know um he, he seemed to hold this position, and I, I think he's not the only one. I think there are quite a few that say, look, Francis is recognized by the moral universality of Catholics throughout the world, and so it's infallibly true that he must be the Pope, and you must accept it, <clears throat> and you can't question it, because the, that moral universality of the Catholic people recognize him as Pope, and that makes him the Pope. Right. But, you know, again, the argument doesn't hold water, doesn't hold holy water. I mean, you've had all these years of Vatican II and modernism, and the Catholic people have lost the sense of the faith, largely. I mean, they've been, they've been let's face it, they've been modernized. They've been deceived by Vatican II. Many of them do not even know the fundamentals of the faith. I mean, let's face it, Pope Pius X warned in 1906, that uh, a great many of the Catholic people, even in Europe, did not know enough of the Catholic faith even to save their souls, the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And with modernism after Vatican II, the situation did not improve. And so, you know, you, you may say, okay, those, the, the majority, the moral majority of those who call, them, call themselves Catholic may recognize Francis as a Pope. But what what is the practical effect of that? Does that actually make Francis the Pope, or does it rather say that the Catholic, the faith in these people has been so short-circuited, corrupted, uh, so weakened and blinded that they, they wouldn't know the difference if they saw a Catholic Pope or not? Uh, that they're ready to embrace somebody who was a man of the world and a Pope of the world. Well, that's how Francis was first proposed. That's how people embraced him. Uh, but I think that rather than show what a great Catholic Francis was, I think it shows the, the, the weakness, even loss of faith 
of millions and millions of people who basically let's say well yes i'm catholic or i was catholic or i was raised catholic but what does that mean anymore and they're the people who looked at francis as both yeah no i i, I sorry but I, I don't find that argument convincing uh i do believe you have to have the catholic faith to be a catholic you can't be a notorious heretic um francis is a diagonal modernist right uh read Pashendi, you're reading uh it's, it's all about france it's a playbook his playbook yeah so um in any case uh, but but yeah. uh tom I, I know we wanted to look at those uh those questions because they all came in and basically i guess arrived more or less at the same time mm-hmm. yeah uh, revolving around the same question we um we have a couple more father but um i think they uh they might diverge from this topic a little bit um so i thought maybe we could end there if yeah. you wouldn't mind we uh we had a very profitable discussion and answered all of the questions so i'm sure we'll have no more follow-up questions whatsoever <laughs> one question you were getting at though and i i'd like to hear father Skirky answer this okay is, uh, what should a catholic do in these yeah. confused times if he, if he doesn't really know whether francis is the pope or not what what should catholics do well i can tell you what they a couple of things i've known back years ago when people quit going to Novus Ordo, as this first started changing, I've seen some, they, they'd quit the Novus Ordo, but they started looking, trying to find, and they'd, uh, you know, they'd drive a distance, do whatever they had to do to be able to find a Mass, go to Mass, and to preserve their faith. Then you had those who saw it was coming, and they just did nothing. They'd washed their hands, but they walked away and did nothing. And the consequence of that is that their children didn't know the faith, they weren't baptized, their grandchildren, they, they don't, don't call themselves Catholic, they used to be Catholic. So they, they, they if, They'd have to do something. They got to do something to preserve the faith. You know what they do years ago. They did, they didn't couldn't go to church. They started looking. They started shopping around. Then they started they started studying. They started not not to canon laws. They started studying their Catholic faith. They started knowing the Catholic. They started practicing. They started praying, getting together, praying the rosary. All the things they were doing. I'm just thinking of what my parents did back in the '60s and '70s, earlier. Mm-hmm. But they'd have to they they have to start knowing their faith and practicing their faith. Get a stronger faith. Well, you know, uh, when you say that, I, I, I hear kind of an echo in a sense. Uh, there was a uh, gentleman, uh, well, a, a Catholic priest named uh, Don uh, Moore, or Lawrence? No, it's Don, Don Moore, M. Yes, yeah, his first name? Yeah. Don. Don no, 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 his, his first name was not Don. Oh, uh, Charles. Don, Charles. Charles, okay. Moore, I think, yeah. Don, well, Don from uh, like Don Bosco. Right? Um, he wrote a book called Murder in the 33rd Degree about the um, assassination, essentially, of, of uh, Luciani, uh, uh, of, uh, well, Pope Jean-Paul, II. Jean-Paul I, actually. Oh, okay, I guess that's, that's how the world would know him. And um, it's a very interesting book about the Masonic intrigues and in the church and the efforts of uh, Archbishop Gagnon to expose them, right? Um, but um, this uh, Don Murr actually was watching our, our program for some time, and we, we heard from him. We're very happy to hear from him. Uh, it took uh, sort of out of courage for him to write the book that he did now, and uh, it made quite a, uh, uh, quite a loud report, kind of the, the, 
unfortunately these days even even amazing news like that tends to fade all too quickly uh with the media the way it is but someone asked don murr well given the situation of the masonic infiltration of the church and the corruption of the faith and all that's going on what's the first thing a catholic should do you know what his answer was get the catechism by that he meant the old traditional catechism learn the faith that's the first thing learn the faith right and what you just sent here i think uh basically came down to learn your faith yes then you'll know only then will you know be able to know what to do right yes absolutely so you would agree with that mm -hmm. yes well it, i had to think about what don murray said and i the more i think about it the more i agree with him too okay. so well anyway so that's what you're here for and that's what i'm here for right okay so people who learn the faith that's right well, thank you both uh, for being here tonight, Father Shaker. It's great to have you back again. It's my pleasure. Yes, thank you, and Father Jenkins. Thank you again, of course, and uh, oh, blessed, thank you. Uh, blessed 45th anniversary of ordination to the priesthood. Thank you very uh, in much. The coming days, and uh, looking forward to the celebration and the solemn high mass that we'll have here at uh, Immaculate Conception tomorrow. Looking forward to that, and uh, God bless you both. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Very much. Thank you as well to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.